0: Our psalm of the day this morning is Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. morning. Uh, Before I get going, of course, Reformation Sunday, Tuesday, that'll be 500 years. Um, When I got into this field, I never, I didn't even think about the 500-year anniversary. But uh, at this point, with having spoken at two or three conferences, written a couple of articles, just sermons and other things, uh, I do feel uh, I want to say That I'll still be here on Wednesday. If you want to hang out, uh, my schedule's wide open. Uh, No one really wants to talk to me after this week, it seems. Uh, (laughs) It seems, though, that we are focused on this time, these 500 years. Uh, And therefore, it would be appropriate to look at Romans chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 16. Romans 1 16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you asking the basic question is what does it mean to follow you? What is this faith? Um, Is it something that we're missing? Is it something that we think we have, but that we need to come back to the scriptures and come back to you in faith? Uh, Above all, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with us and would enlighten our hearts and open our minds that we might might understand your word. And we ask all this in Christ's name, amen. I'm usually not the kind of person that likes talking about dead people, believe it or not, uh, even though I do that for a living. The, the reason I do history and do theology and those things is not just simply because some people lived a while ago and they're worth talking about sometimes. Um, when I came to faith at the age of 17, I didn't know anything about even the Bible I remember I had to ask somebody where in the Bible Christ died, I had no idea which book to even open up to, to look at that. And then they told me there were four of them, and I said, why did they write it down four different times? You know, I had no idea the way the Bible worked. And you know, my instinct with looking into the past was, I think, always driven by this idea of, well, if I feel kind of lost and I don't know what, where I'm going, how did people do it before? Um, how, how could they shape us? Not, not how could they tell us how to do things, but how can we learn from their mistakes, learn from their strengths, all those types of things? And what has happened then as a result of that is I've learned a lot, but it, they haven't become sort of my, my, my masters. Only Jesus is our master. Um, and so what has happened to me over the years, believe it or not, is I, I get allergic to this question of, well, let's talk about some important dead person. Um, particularly on a Sunday when we're having, uh, we should be talking about Jesus. And that's not the intention here. However, one of the things that kind of turned me back towards the realization of this important moment uh, was when I was at Cambridge doing my PhD. Uh, One of the things that's weird about Cambridge is the, the main library there, you can't go into it unless you have a specific pass as a student. It, not, even, nor, not even some students are allowed into it. The reason for it is the, the collection itself is so precious and so comprehensive that they can't just let you know, anybody walk in there and kind of mess around with stuff. You have to realize it's a, it's a copyright library there in the city of Cambridge, which means that every book that's ever published every year has to actually arrive and be cataloged and put into it. Its holdings are right now about eight to nine million volumes. And so when you go to it, it's just simply you get lost. I mean, you can't even imagine. I mean, the the new collection would fit into this room every year. And they add that year by year by year. And so what, what happens is you get on your dinky little bike, you ride down to the library, get in there, and it's like Fort Knox. Um, I mean, my wife couldn't even come with me to come check it out, see what it was like. You, I could only go in there by myself. And you go, you get sort of funneled down into the side room, and you have to strip down, take off every bag and, and, and uh, jacket, everything, and just, just wear simply your clothes. And then you go in, and the joke, at least my joke, was that if you go in, you have to take a compass, uh, a sandwich, and a whistle in case you get lost. Because at, at the end of the day, you, you, you could simply get lost. It's is simply that large. Uh, and what began to spend me back to the real, realization that the Reformation is such an, an important watershed for us, is I actually went to the sections where it was on this time. And it was room after room after room of just countless books of people trying to wrestle with Why this happened 500 years ago? Why did Luther do something that caused a break with the church? And I began to realize it's been this important for so many people for so long. And I think the reason is not simply because the story is incredible in some ways, not because there are heroes and villains and it feels like a Hollywood movie on on some level. But I think the challenge is everyone asks the question, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to follow Christ? Am I doing it right? Uh, Because there seems to be times in the past, there seems to be times even in the New New Testament community where folks get it wrong and the apostles have to say, you're not doing it right. And that can actually, whether or not you admit it every day, it can create anxiety. Do I have faith? What does that mean? What does faith look like? Because what Paul says here, and if you keep reading through the chapter, is he starts talking about the wrath of God for those who do not have faith. So, what is faith? And how are you justified? And what is justification? Well, the answer is not as complicated as it sounds, or as even I might even be suggesting it is. The, the simple thing is it's right here, verse 16 and 17. Paul, at the beginning of Romans, lays out one of his core statements in the entirety of his letters, that He says, he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Right there at the beginning, he says explicitly what salvation is, that it's by faith. And then he says this, this opening uh, couple of words about he's not ashamed of it, which means you have to go, well, who would be ashamed of it? What's the shame that's going on here that he is not ashamed of it? And what you realize is that what Paul is dealing with in his world is a, um, a set of preconditions, a set of assumptions by the community, by the church, both by the Jew and the Greek, which is why he mentions them both. And both have their attachments that they read the gospel through, their, their, their preconditions. On the one hand, there is the Jewish perspective which says that, yes, well, I have to be faithful and loyal and I have to trust God, but there is a me too along beside it. There is a cooperation, there's a, there's a I add as well into my own salvation. God might have put me into the black with God, but I keep paying in as well, we're gonna keep going, that kind of a thing. And in, Cor- in, in Corinth, of course, in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul mentions that the Greeks also find the gospel foolish, they find it stupid. It doesn't pass their bar of intellectual prowess. So if Paul's not ashamed of it, then what actually is it, and how ought it be freeing for us? Well, the reason for the Reformation gives us part of the answer there, at least in terms of how the church has dealt with this. If you want to know why the Reformation happened, I can give it to you in just a couple sentences. It's very simple. The early church dealt with the question of salvation and works, but the only thing they had dealt with in the very early centuries of the church was this kind of overbearing, Uh, pure works righteousness called Pelagianism. I mean, Pelagius is like all those Rocky movies where you have to kind of really exercise a whole lot in order to beat the bad guy, right? You know, you go to Russia. I don't know why he didn't work out before he went to Russia, but then he's in like that weird cabin with no like heating or food and he's doing sit-ups in the rafters, that whole thing. That's Pelagianism. It's basically you have to strengthen oneself entirely in order to win entirely on your own strength the early church dealt with that that was a no-brainer no that's not what we believe we believe in Christ over the next thousand years though the church got wooed into something that was more deceptive but equally as problematic more deceptive because it sounded nice I mean, it's, if I were to walk up to you and say, hey, the only way to please God is to live perfectly, you're going to be like, no, go away, go away, please, no, thank you. I know that's not what the gospel says. However, if I were to walk up to you and say, look, you know, God brings you into his community, he pulls you in, and he saves you, and then you get to cooperate and give back, and that's what's required of you, just a little bit, just, just, just a little effort. you got to try hard a little bit. Just do your best, like a kid. But God will bring you in, but you got to kind of help keep yourself in. You see, that is where the church had fallen into the trap. They knew it wasn't works righteousness, but they didn't know where works fit at all by the end of the Middle Ages. So that what ends up happening is is that the church was teaching people that you have to get in by grace, get in by conversion. I mean, in our sense, it would be, well, I, I gave my life to Christ at this age, But then the church would say, now you have to give back. There has to be a reciprocation. And the important phrase there is the has to. One must or else. And what Paul is talking about here is not that. Paul specifically lays out a gospel pattern of not being ashamed of it because it exposes his shame. And yet there is a power in the gospel itself, that is not from you. That gospel is coming to you, you are not contributing anything to it. In other words, the problem is is that we think that we get in by grace and we stay in by some effort of our own. And what the gospel actually is, is that everything is by grace. And yet that grace is a power to change you. So let me walk you through it. First, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Why would he be ashamed? Well, why would he not be ashamed, I should say? If you read through the rest of this chapter, and you read on into chapters 2 and 3 and 4, Paul has basically the the starkest light possible shining onto our sin. He was was exposing problems. At one point, he says, your throats are like open graves, which just means that everything that comes out of you is just just wrong and twisted and sinful. And what he is uh, dealing with are people who tend to believe that they're doing pretty well, thank you very much. They're doing fine. They're not as great as they could be. They're not doing as well as they could be. But, you know, by and large, they're keeping Torah. They're, they're, they're doing the rules. They're, they're not as bad as those weird pagans, at least. They're not as bad as their neighbors, but what Paul has done throughout, the, will do throughout these chapters, and what he's done up until this point in chapter 1, is he's saying, that's not good enough. And you might say it this way, that Paul's uh, audience is dealing with the shame of not being able to admit their own virtues into the equation. We in the, every court of law, every society have these things, uh, these situations where evidence can't be admitted, Right? You can't bring in certain evidence because it's inadmissible. If if you're not a lawyer, you at least know that much. It's inadmissible as evidence at this point. What Paul is saying here throughout this chapter and throughout the next chapter is everything that you have is inadmissible at this point. You're all covenant breakers. And everyone's going, well, but come on. You know, I, I, I did a little bit, you know. I was nice that one time. You know, you get get these kinds of arguments where you try to shield and defend. What Paul does is basically say you can't do that. What the power of the gospel does, what the the shame of, what what Paul's not ashamed of, is to simply say, I am every bit that sinner. And so what I've realized over the years, teaching this and, and working with people, is that is usually the hardest thing possible to do. Is There's usually a lot of, yeah, I'm a sinner. Okay, where? Well, you know, in general. No, where? Everywhere is the answer. Everything. You're not the worst version of yourself, no, but it doesn't mean that what you have is this moral leg to stand on, this, this perfection in some qualities in your life. You don't have that. Paul's not ashamed to admit that. This is what he is opening up with here. He's admitting that he is not perfect. But he is admitting it very, very specifically. He is being honest, we would say, about himself. And that is, in many ways, the hardest thing to do when you think you're doing quite okay. But the gospel says that you can't do this on your own. And the only way to realize that is to realize all the flaws in your life. Not to hide them not to pretend they don't exist, but to not be ashamed of them. Because what happens is when you say yes, I am incapable, then you need a savior. If you think about it that way, that's the reason why Paul is so blistering in these opening chapters. Because every time you deny that there's sin in your life, every time that you don't want to admit faults, every time you don't want to admit that you're sometimes rude, sometimes selfish, sometimes angry, sometimes uh, all about yourself, if you want to deny all that, you deny the need for a Savior. Every time you admit that you need something, Admit that you screw it up. Admit that you can't keep everything perfect. Admit that sometimes it feels like you're just hanging on by a thread. Every time you admit that, though, you know you need a Savior. One of the most freeing exercises, then, is just to say, here are my faults. Here are the problems I have. Here's where I can't keep this law. Not to focus on those things you're doing okay at. Not to focus on the things that you're proud of, but rather to say, even in the things that I'm proud of, I don't keep it perfectly. Then you actually have a reason for a savior. Then you actually need a cross. Then you actually need Jesus. So Paul is blistering. He says, none of you keep this. Therefore, the only way to find salvation is through someone else, and you get justified, he says, by faith. Justified. All right, what does that word? What does justified mean? Well, justified does not mean changed inwardly. In fact, it is the exact opposite of being justified. To justify oneself means what? It means you actually reorient yourself to someone else. So if I were to come to one of you and you were to say something and I were to say, well, hold on, what do you mean by that? Just, justify that statement. Make, make, make that clear. Tell me what that means. You would then start to explain it and make sure that I understand and then I go, okay, we're okay on that, that kind of a thing justification is saying you are who you are, but you have to reorient yourself to another person. And what the Jews and what in their own way the Greeks were doing is having their own strategies for saving themselves. And Paul says you can't do that. What you have to have is a savior. All right, well, how do I grab the savior? Trust. Loyalty. Just simply knowing that he paid the price and you can't. That's all it is. You see, in our world, sometimes faith is confused with faithfulness, that you're justified by your own goodness, your own faithfulness. You just kind of smuggle it back in. But what Paul is saying is, no, you can't, therefore someone else did, therefore all you can do is trust him. And short of actually trusting him, you can't get saved, is what he's saying. This is what changed in Luther's life. He went to the monastery, he tried out to do these things, I mean, as a lot of historians have pointed out, Luther's really not that bad of a sinner by the standards of the 21st century. It's like, oh, you, you felt kind of grumpy one morning. Ooh, you know, big deal. He, he got this whole thing going on. But, but what he realized in a process of confessing all the time is he can't quite get it off. He can't get it out. He can't get the, the stain off his soul. He can't wash the, 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 the dirt away. And he kept trying, and it's a bit like that, that scene in Hamlet. You can't get the blood off the hands, and he can't change and then what we realize is that what this verse is saying is, "justification, your salvation is not first, about change. It's about trusting the one who did it. trusting that Christ paid it all. That much, most people, I think, are comfortable with. I think we, we know. Jesus paid it, and I receive it. The problem, though, is, like the medieval church, we tend to think that basically God got us back to zero got us back to a blank slate, and that we then kind of fill in the rest. And what Paul talks about here is not faith and then the next thing is, you know, now you got to add it, but rather he starts talking about the gospel as this power, a power for salvation. What does that mean? What he is talking about there is what he will talk about uh, throughout all of his books, which is that salvation is not merely trusting not merely knowing that your debts are paid, but that there's a power that changes you afterwards, you don't change yourself. So by admitting it and by trusting, the spirit comes in, Paul says, and cries Abba Father in your heart. And that spirit comes and it begins to work on you. You don't work on yourself. But when you trust, when you love, suddenly you find that you feel conviction at times you find that it is easier to forgive. It feels almost like the the scene in Narnia where the ice statues suddenly thaw and melt over the course of your life. Where the hard sanctification in the beginning suddenly begins to, to melt and melt and melt and over the course of your life that power of the gospel changes you. But you never take credit for it. You want it, you desire it, you trust, but it is changing you, you're not changing yourself as we sing in O for a Thousand Tongues, that what Christ comes to do is break the power of canceled sin. He breaks the canceled sin. He doesn't simply say, fix your sin and then I'll come and save you. Rather, he takes the sin and it's canceled, then he breaks it by the power of the gospel. And so if all you think you need is to get back to a clean slate and you don't need something more, you need to realize that what the gospel is giving is a power that will actually change you. And you go, all right, I wanna change. How do you change? Let's go back to the beginning. You change by constantly, consistently, always admitting those faults, exposing them, bringing the gospel to every single place where you can't change. Because in most cases I've seen, This is true in history, this is true today, this is true in practical life. Everything every time I've I've noticed there's somebody that has like a lock, they can't change it. Usually what's going on is they won't admit something there. They'll admit flaws over on this side, but there's this one thing that they can't change. And they want it to change, but they it's like they're protecting something. They can't admit something here. Because they know that Christ has paid it all, but what they want is a change. They want this power of the gospel. And they say, I love Jesus, but do you love him if you won't admit the flaws across the spectrum? If you don't open up and say, yes, I have problems here. I need help. You see, the problem I think right now in the 21st century is that over the 500 years of, since the Reformation, we've exchanged a life of constantly repenting, constantly coming back to the gospel, to a conversion and then we wait for heaven. And that after that conversion is all right, I gotta write that at the front of my Bible. Now At what? And there's this language where you're not supposed to keep admitting flaws and keep keep exposing things and keep coming back and saying, you know, I'm 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 better than I was, thanks be to God, because the Holy Spirit's worked in me, but I'd like to change in this area as well. Why? Well, let me get honest about myself right now. I'm insecure. I, I don't like that about myself. I don't like talking to anybody about that. If you're not ashamed of the gospel, you're already a sinner. You've already admitted that and you continue to admit it. So what the gospel brings is this power to admit those things. That is how you change them. That is how you see this power at work in your life. Without that, nothing seems to change. The old uh, Puritans used to talk about this idea of a besetting sin, B-E setting, besetting sin. It's an old way of speaking. What does that mean? Well, the Purans would say that basically when you get cocky, when you get an ego in yourself, when you start to think that you're doing all right, thank you very much, that there is this practical habit, and they say they don't really have a verse for this, but they just noticed it in pastoral ministry. That there's this habit where God goes, oh, you think you're doing pretty well? How about you just, I'll just take uh, my, my, my hand of protection away and allow some thorn in the flesh to keep coming upon you. So if you were to cast that out, it's, oh, I think I'm doing pretty well. And then suddenly you realize, like, over the course of several weeks, how grumpy you are towards everybody and how entitled you act, and you can't not be a grump to everybody. You're going, why am I acting like this? What's going on here? (laughs) You start asking, like, why is this happening? And what the Puritans would say is that's God simply saying, oh, you want to do it on your own? Go right ahead. And he leaves you in that, and he lets you see that problem. And then when you're out, you're going, okay, fine, I admit this is not on me. In other words, the power of the gospel is not an empowering thing for you, it is a depowering thing for you. And what that depowering, what that uh, admitting of one's fault does, is it actually brings the power of the gospel to cancel, sorry, to break the power of that canceled sin. It always stands the logic of what we try to do on its head. You cannot save yourself, you need a savior. You cannot change yourself, the only way to change yourself is to admit that you can't. That's the gospel in a nutshell. It's not merely having a faithful kind of experience. It's not merely liking Jesus. Those who are saved, those who have faith, trust him because they don't trust themselves. They've given up on themselves as their own savior. And because they give up on themselves as a savior, they get the true savior. They get the true change. They get the Holy Spirit. They get all of the conviction that they've wanted. All the times when something comes out of your mouth and you wish you could take it back and you realize, I'm gonna immediately repent of that because that's just not, not acceptable. That's not you doing that, by the way. That's the conviction that comes by the power of the gospel. If you want to change, if you want to know this salvation, the very honest answer, pastor early is give up. Stop trying to be the one who saves yourself, and that usually means you have to give up the things you would admit to nobody. That usually means is you have to give up on being ashamed, because at the end of the day, you say, "I am shamed. I am a sinner. My hands are stained." And you do that for the rest of your life. That in a very strange way, the Christian life becomes actually a desire to constantly confess, just as we did earlier this morning. It's free. It actually, it actually is a cathartic, unburdening experience because the gospel, the power of it, comes only by trust, only by faith. At the end of the day, the Reformation is about warning us not about just simply trying to be awesome and be a works righteousness person. What Luther always warns us about, which is why we're still talking about him, is that you can think you're getting faith, but what you're really doing is smuggling in yourself. Smuggling in your own um, uh, works righteousness in the back end in the, on the, on, through the window if the door is closed. The problem is is that throughout the Middle Ages most people did not admit that they were believing in their own righteousness. They kept saying grace, grace. This is the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. Meanwhile, they were saying, saying Hail Marys, penances, paying indulgences, they were doing all these things and calling it grace. Let's take that medicine. How many things do you call grace but they're really things that are driven by yourself? The gospel says you can't do this. But the gospel says it will be done if you give up. If you give up on yourself as the Savior and embrace Christ as the Savior. Then the Spirit comes. Then sanctification comes. Then the fruit of the Spirit comes. And then all those things that we were intended to be as God's image comes with it. Let's pray. Father, we do not worship a dead man. We worship the living Christ. Though we are called Protestants, we simply want to be Christians in the ultimate sense. We simply want to be your disciples. However, Lord, those who have gone before us sometimes remind us of things that are so easy to forget. Things like that our righteousness is not enough. That we try to justify ourselves. But Lord may you be the one who saves us. May we give up on that vain, egotistical desire to save ourselves. But Lord, may we also experience the power of the gospel. May it also come by your spirit. And may you enliven our hearts for the journey ahead. And as we keep coming back to repentance, may you always be pleased that we are not ashamed of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.